Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. I literally managed to like have one goal of solving a murder and ended up with so many different mind-blowing, eye-opening, what-the-hell moment situations like you would not believe. This is Method and Madness, Episode 70, The Namesake, Part 1. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Catherine was 24 years old. Five foot five with curly brown hair and was wearing red nail polish. Brown eyebrows. Not wearing any rings, bracelets, earrings. No jewelry at all, in fact. Other words jumped off the page at Katrina Marshall as she read through the document in front of her. Unremarkable. Decomposition. Phrases like, no evidence of injury. It's not how she wanted to learn about her aunt by reading the details of the autopsy report conducted at the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences in Dallas, Texas. It was that one phrase, though, that really ate at Katrina. Manner of death. Undetermined. That may have been the best finding at the time, prior to an investigation. After all, it said it right there in black and white. No evidence of external or internal trauma. No evidence of injury. Cause of death? Also undetermined. Is this the legacy that Catherine Mowry left behind? Dying in June of 1985? Far too soon? Way too young? For some unknown reason? That word, undetermined, would fuel a young woman decades later fuel her to get the answers. Catherine's life mattered. Her family knows she mattered. Her niece was even named after her. That niece would go on to be determined, determined to make sure that her aunt's death, her aunt's murder, would not be ignored. She's determined to find justice. Throughout this series, you'll get to know the three Maori sisters, Catherine, Joanne and Deborah. You'll hear about their lives and the tragedies that followed each one of them. Kidnapping, a murder, and another murder, and how the effects of so much pain and injustice led to a third death. And you'll hear it all through the voice of one woman, a surviving member of the family, the niece of Catherine Mowry. Her name is Katrina Marshall. And she is the namesake. Let's dive in.
My name is Katrina Marshall. I am in my very early 30s. I have three children and they keep me pretty busy almost all the time and then some. And then I also work full time in logistics, transportation, shipping, receiving industry across the United States. I live in Kansas, which is where this story starts, actually. It starts with Catherine and James Mowry, a couple that had six children, a son from a previous relationship of Catherine's, followed by two more sons and three daughters. The first daughter was born on February 5, 1961, and was named Catherine Diane Mowry. She would later be known as Katrina, and for the purpose of this series, and to avoid confusion with our special guest, and namesake, I'll do my best to clarify which Katrina or Catherine we're referring to. The second daughter, Joanne, was born the following year, and finally the third, Deborah, was born in 1963. Deborah would go on to have a daughter in 1991 and name her after her big sister. The three Maori daughters' lives were full of more trauma and turmoil than anyone should have to endure starting at a very young age. They grew up together in Lawrence, Kansas, a town about 25 miles east of Topeka, one that covers 32 square miles with an approximate population of 32,000 in the 1960s. They were really close in age. They were very close overall. Of course, they grew up together, just always pretty much in each other's space, having to share rooms and stuff and you know they were just all all three best friends growing up in Lawrence Kansas they were similar looking especially my mom and Katrina but they were all very different for example talking about teenage years specifically I know Joanne was by far more of the mischievous one daring very adventurous. She just had a knack for getting herself in trouble just so she could see if she could talk herself out of it. (laughs) It was almost kind of like a game in a sense. I know that she had eventually got herself in a lot of trouble and then even ended up at one point like in a children's home kind of a thing. And then of course you had my aunt Katrina who was like a, a year older, maybe a little less. She was more the normal one that was more outgoing. She's more kind, very empathetic. She she spoke well. She was really smart, even though admittedly Joanne did manage to definitely drug her into a little bit of her adventures, (laughs) so to speak. So, you know, teenagers, basically. And then my mom, she was the youngest, She's always been a writer. She wrote for her school newspaper in junior high school and high school. She was a really good, really good writer. Very smart. The youngest, obviously. She really, in her words, not mine, worshipped the ground that, you know, my Aunt Katrina walked on. Just idolized her, you know. They were very close. Whereas Joanne, even though they were all three very close, she kind of would go off on and do her own thing sometimes. Only a few years after the girls were born, their parents, Catherine and James, separated. 
when my grandma and my biological grandfather split, she remarried who I consider my grandfather, my step-grandfather, Robert Mowry, M-O-W-E-R-Y. They were like the Brady Bunch. So when they got married eventually, he brought his children from his previous marriage, and my grandma had her five. I have only met my biological grandfather maybe like two or three times in Dallas, and it was when I was younger than five. He was kind of all over the place at first, but Dallas was his home. I also know that whenever it was the summer of 1966, so my mom would have only been like three, and him and my grandma had just split up. He was resentful, I guess you could say, I'm sure. And he actually ended up kidnapping my mom and both of her sisters out of the front yard of their grandparents' house. So my grandma's parents, they were out there like eating an ice cream cone or something. So they were three, four, and five years old, just, you know, running around their grandparents' front yard eating ice cream so they didn't make a mess inside. And he kidnapped all three of them out of nowhere and took them to Dallas. And my grandma searched for them for at least a year, maybe two years before she ever found them. And I know hate is a strong word. (laughs) She hated him. I mean, he was not a very good person. The girl's mom eventually got her daughters back and returned to Kansas with them. The wait had been agonizing, but finally the family was whole again after a happy reunion. But before getting remarried, and with the single working mom, the three girls and their three brothers were left with a lot of babysitters, and Joanne and Katrina had the benefit of that taste of freedom. The girls' kidnapping was the first of many traumatic experiences that the Maori sisters would endure, from their parents separating to their own father stealing them out of the front yard. It seemed that their fates were sealed, and life, unfortunately, was not going to get much easier for Katrina, Joanne, and Deborah. And that connection to Dallas, Texas, would circle back around for the Maori family. In hindsight, the girls' kidnapping may have been the very event that led them back to the city, where ultimately, two of the Maori sisters, Katrina and Joanne, would eventually settle down in the 80s, when it was reaching popularity as a place where you could earn a decent living. And Joanne kind of ventured off even before she was 18. She kind of went off on her own and moved to Dallas before anyone else kind of gotten in trouble down there somewhere. But uh, she had talked my Aunt Katrina into also joining her down in Dallas a couple times. I know that my Aunt Katrina was back and forth. Like, They were back and forth visiting, of course, but also she would come back and forth. It's just far enough to be considered moving away, but just close enough to not need to take an airplane. It's like a five and a half hour drive, maybe. And my mom would go down there a lot. And I know that it was easy to just catch a plane from Kansas City to Dallas. I don't think Joanne ever came back after she left, technically. My mom had told me some of the stories about my aunt Katrina moving there for college. She wanted to go to the Fashion Institute there or something. But Katrina was in real estate. She liked 
real estate. And she got licensed in real estate in Kansas before she moved to Dallas. She had studied and studied and studied and ended up passing her real estate licensing exams in like half of the normal time that it takes to get it. But she never pursued it once she left Kansas and went to Dallas for some reason. Maybe the Fashion Institute, but I know she really liked to get dressed up and look good. She's in her 20s. She liked to go to discos and go roller skating with my other aunt and my mom. My mom was a really good skater. She didn't have an athletic bone in her body, but she could skate backwards, sideways, forwards. (laughs) The original Katrina, Katrina Mowry, spent her time between the age of 18 and 24, back and forth from Kansas to Dallas. And at age 22, she had a near-death experience, but a chance encounter saved her life. It was winter, and Katrina was driving her 1980 Chevy in Kansas City, Missouri, when she lost control of her car on a slick overpass and went off the side of a bridge. She was thrown from the vehicle and landed about a foot from the Kansas City Southern Railroad tracks, 75 feet from her overturned car. Kansas City police officers were flying past the scene at about 3 a.m. when they happened to glance down and see the reflection of the Chevy's taillight. Katrina was alive, but all she remembered was her car weaving and sliding. It was unknown how long she had been lying there on the cold ground. Katrina was taken to St. Joseph Hospital. She had suffered neck injuries and possible fractures of the upper back and utilized a wheelchair for some time before making her recovery. By the following year, 1985, Katrina would make her way back to Dallas. Let's take a break. It was Dallas, Texas, 1985, and of course, pop culture influences people's choices and living decisions. Just as Farrah Fawcett had inspired a hairstyle, John Travolta, an urban cowboy, was inspiring folks to seek romance in the Lone Star State. Dallas, the TV show, was at its height of popularity and airing on Friday nights. By that summer, nobody could escape the songs of Simple Minds, Tears for Fears, and Madonna. Dallas was at the tail end of a real estate boom at the time. With technology growing, the city was thriving, and a new downtown provided for a distinctive skyline. The city hadn't yet experienced the saving and loan crisis that would make a devastating impact that fall. Catherine Katrina Mowry was working at a country club and living in a residence on Columbia Avenue in Dallas located a few blocks from Buckner Park. Although she was a licensed realtor in the state of Kansas, she hadn't pursued a career in real estate in Texas. Still close with her family, she was planning a trip back to Lawrence, Kansas, in mid-June of 85. But that visit never happened. Katrina and her sister Deborah last spoke on the phone on June 18th, the last time that a member of the Maori family would hear from Katrina. 
It was the afternoon of Tuesday, June 25th. Dallas police received a call from the manager of the South Oak Cliff apartment complex on South Marsalis Avenue. She complained about a strong odor coming from a car that had been parked in the alley behind the building since Saturday night. Law enforcement officers responded and observed flies inside the 1978 Ford LTD, a car known to many as a reliable, comfortable land yacht. The trunk of the Ford was locked, but officers were able to pry it open. Inside was the badly decomposed body of a woman. She was naked, wrapped in a stained white sheet. The medical examiner's office said that initially, all they could tell was that the deceased was a white woman, pending further investigation. The Dallas Morning News published an article that week with the headline that said, quote, Woman in car trunk died of overdose, police say. The article identifies the deceased woman as Catherine Diane Mowry, 24, of Dallas. Homicide Sergeant H.M. Rice told reporters, quote, We speculate that she died on somebody and they just got scared and put her in the trunk. It's not going to be classified as a murder because we have no idea who put her in there. End quote. Yes, that information comes directly from the 1985 article that Katrina's death would not be classified as murder because the police didn't know who put her there. The article goes on to say that there was evidence that Katrina had taken cocaine. The article ends with a small quote from Katrina's mother that she didn't know what her daughter was doing in Dallas since she left their home in Kansas when she was 18. As you'll hear from our namesake, Katrina Marshall, this was not accurate. The cops showed up to tell my grandmother somehow in person in Kansas and that it was initially told to be a suicide, but then a newspaper a couple days later came out two different times that it was a drug overdose. And the way that the... Reporter wrote the article was very misleading. They kind of word things to fit their narrative more or less a lot of times, or they used to back then. The way my grandmother talks and what they quoted her saying is not the way she said it. I know that for a fact because I lived with her for so long. They said, Miss Mowry's mother, who lives in Kansas, told the investigator Wednesday that she did not know what the woman had been doing in Dallas since she left Kansas at age 18. So for one, that's not true because my aunt lived back in Kansas when she was 20, 23 and 84 for a while. So it's not like she just left Kansas at 18 and never came back. That's not even true. But I think the way she said it was more of a smart-ass way, kind of like, well, apparently I don't know what she's been doing since she left Kansas kind of a thing. But it was made to sound... Like, apparently, I don't know what she's been up to. Apparently drugs. (laughs) It was just misleading in a way that turned people off from wanting to look into it further. It seems anyway, like an intentional misinformation, misleading. Well, her mom doesn't even know what the heck is going on, what's going on with her. So why should anyone else care? Just another junkie off the street kind of thing. Whereas that is not how she talks, not how she would have said it. So it's pretty obvious that it's inaccurate, but. I'm not sure if there are ethical 
checks they need to do before they publish something, but apparently not. The official certificate of death that was issued by the state of Texas estimated that Katrina died on June 23rd, two days before she was found in the abandoned car. The cause of death was listed as undetermined following autopsy and toxicology results. Katrina's body was cremated. Deborah and Joanne Mowry were devastated over the loss of their big sister whom they adored. And for the namesake, Katrina Marshall, born in January of 1991 to Deborah, she never had the chance to meet Aunt Katrina, but she was always a huge part of her life. There was never a single point in my childhood where I learned about what happened. I know that it was a very sore topic for everyone on my mom's side of the family, for sure, because they had all believed she had died of a drug overdose, a cocaine overdose, because that's how it was reported in the media. So it was almost like a shameful, you know, they didn't, they didn't like to talk about it either for one reason or another, whether it be judgment of the family or pain. And my mom never not talked about it. We talked, like, it was so normal. We talked about her as if she was sitting next to us, almost. <laughs> it was never a topic that was off limits like it was around anyone else. My mom was so hurt by the way everyone kind of shunned my Aunt Katrina's life out of conversation and topic like they did. She was so hurt by that that she literally named her only daughter after the victim just so they would have to keep and continually say her name <laughs> and keep the memory alive. It was the 80s with very few resources for gathering more information. Hearing the details of how Katrina was found and what the police concluded left the Maori family with few answers. There may have been no reason for most of the family to doubt that the cause of death was an overdose. Maybe they simply believed the theories put out by the police. Theories that later seemed unsubstantiated based on the evidence in that trunk. A theory that was actually nothing more than a guess. Police seemed to be ignoring one huge glaring fact, that even if Katrina had died of an overdose, someone had committed a crime by disposing of her body in that manner. But one member of the Maori family wasn't buying the overdose theory for a second. I never knew that it was reported as a drug overdose. My mom said she was murdered. Of course, everyone else knew it as a cocaine overdose. I didn't realize it at the time that my mom just knew it was not a drug overdose. <laughs> we have very strong intuitions. Her and I both are like that. It's, it's kind of strange, almost in a clairvoyant way, but uh, she just knew. I mean, she also knew my aunt better than anyone. She was spent the most time with her. My aunt, actually, the whole reason I ended up finding her and letting my mom know she had been found dead is because she was supposed to be on her way to Kansas and never showed up. I know that the very last conversation they ever had together on the phone, they got in an argument like sisters do, and my mom hung up on her. And that pretty much ate her alive from the inside out until the day she died. She regretted that moment forever. In 2006, Deborah wrote this as a tribute to her sister Katrina.
Katrina was my idol, my friend, my hero, and I truly worshipped the ground that she walked on. She taught me so many things about life, love, and compassion with the patience and understanding of a much older, more mature person. When she got excited about something, she had this unique, contagious glow, and with a single glance, could make me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Coming up on The Namesake. I want facts. I want proof. I want black and white. I want a physical copy of this. I want someone to tell me directly. I want documentation. I don't want opinions per se in terms of what the police think could have happened, might have happened. I need the specifics of whatever you think might be relevant or irrelevant even of what happens because a lot of the stuff that they have they can't figure out why it's relevant, but I can. Tune in next time as we learn more about the Maori sisters and all the tragedies that followed them. And hear more from the namesake, Katrina Marshall, as she sets out to seek the truth about her Aunt Katrina's unsolved 1985 murder. She is relentless in that pursuit as she realizes every day that it may be solely up to her to keep on pushing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness, and thank you to Katrina Marshall. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod, and on Instagram at MethodAndMadnessPod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. Sound editing is by Mo and Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.